Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Patrick Crowley's here today. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? Glad to be here. Thanks for making it all the way out to Jericho. I really appreciate it. So today, what I wanted to talk about is a pretty big topic that I think every single person in the world can relate to right now, and it's um, opiates and what is going on in Vermont specifically, but some trends that we're looking at in the country. So when we start talking about, like, we've talked about the problem here for a little bit. So like, what the heck are we going to do? Like, what are people trying to do? And what did you find out when you were doing your research? Like, how do we even start to get on top of this and, and deal with it? Like, what are people saying? Yeah, people are saying all kinds of different solutions. So uh, when I looked at Burlington specifically, one of the reasons I, I I wanted to frame the the opiate crisis in the city of Burlington is because there's really this huge effort people in the city to try and think of what can we do? We have to do everyone of every political alignment in the city of Burlington will all say that what they're doing now isn't working and yeah. that they have to come up with something. So, so some of the things that people are suggesting are maybe, maybe, you know, on one side, people want to push even further into into what's framed as harm reduction. So that means things like overdose prevention centers. Um, those are, um, the state of Vermont is not quite convinced that that's legally allowed to happen. Um, you do see them in other parts of the country. New York City has two of them. And that has kind of been, they've opened those, um, depending on your interpretation of federal law, kind of in defiance of federal law because um, they're allowing people to take in illegal drugs into these supervised settings, use the drugs under supervision, and if there's an overdose, it's reversed. And it's my understanding that the centers in New York City have never had a death and they've only had to call for, um, you know, for an ambulance to come in, uh, you know, a small handful of times because in the, in fact, I, I saw in an inter interview, they don't even give naloxone as their first, as their first method. They, they usually just go with oxygen, oxygenation. And then if they need to, they'll, they'll, um, titrate naloxone. Yeah. And actually, I actually pulled a little bit of data on this because this is, this is a really fascinating topic for me because I remember, I don't, I don't remember if you were there or not, but we had a union meeting when we were, when I was on the fire department and the mayor had just, just, just skipped over the surface of this about the safe infection uh, in, um, injection sites, the SISs. And it like more than half of the people in that room looked right into the mayor's eyes and said, I will walk out of this job and I will never come back. If you even think about bringing that here. The city of New York has allowed people to use illegal drugs like heroin and fentanyl under the supervision of a professional to stop them from dying of an overdose. 17 people have overdosed since you opened last week. Since we opened last week. And all of them have survived. All of them have survived. No more improperly discarded syringes on the streets, near our schools, in our subway stations. A harm reduction strategy used around the world for decades, now open in the United States. 
And the more I read about this, there are some really, really polarized feelings about whether this should or should not be done. And I'm really curious, like if you have any idea, you know, just from people you've talked to about where that comes from. My understanding is that um, Phil Scott vetoed even just the, the studying of a site like this. Do you have any idea, you know, where he was coming from there? I mean, the state, when I asked about this for my stories, said one of the reasons for the resistance is, and this maybe makes sense to a certain degree, it wouldn't work in, you know, the more rural places. Yeah. Um, it really would be most effective in a place like Burlington, maybe, maybe Rutland too, maybe maybe Brattleboro. But you're right, even even the the idea to study the issue was was vetoed. And um, the deputy health commissioner, when I interviewed her, um, said that she was a little more open to it, um, but said it, it wouldn't be a panacea, as she put it, and and it would really only work in specific places in Vermont, like Burlington, but you're right. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous, even within Burlington, there's, there's a lot of resistance to the idea of, of just the basic concept of it, which is that supervised illegal drug use. Um, but those that, that are in favor of it are saying it's, it's just about saving lives. And so, um, maybe it's not the, the permanent solution, but maybe if if you want to get overdose deaths down, maybe it's maybe it's a tool. But um, but it's a very divisive issue for sure. Yeah, and there's there was a study I read, um, which I can also put in the show notes, that was based out of Canada where they were doing this program, and listening to our friends, our mutual friends who are from Burlington doing the community response team, talking about just the sheer call volume that they're dealing with. I mean, they're, they're set to break 11,000 calls this year, which is insane. I mean, that's a huge number with the highest ever opiate response, um, reversals. And, you know, this, this study out of, um, out of Canada, they had with the opening of these centers, they had a 67% drop in call volume in their opiate um, responses. And like you were talking about before, I mean, these folks are providing Narcan, they're doing um, oxygenation, they're, whole, you know, they're trained to open the airway, they may even have nursing staff on site. And I think the other, you know, the other thing that we have to think about a little bit is that harm reduction piece that you're talking about, because a lot of these centers, one of their selling points is looking at all of the periphery impacts you have on the system as a whole, not just on the opiate death or opiate reversal, because if they have access to clean syringes, they're less likely to get HIV hepatitis, which is generally good for the population. It reduces the burden on the healthcare system. It reduces the need for them to go up um, to the hospital. One of the studies I looked at here said that when there's um, a safe a syringe program or some sort of like syringe exchange program. Um, they did a comparison between San Francisco and Miami and San Francisco has this safe syringe program and Miami does not. And they found eight times more improperly disposed of syringes in Miami than San Francisco. And so when you start to like really apply this, you know, you mentioned earlier in the show about um, the D improperly disposed of syringes being more prevalent because they're using more times a day that the action is quick on quick off. And I found a really interesting um, fact when I was reading one of these articles where it says that um, one in every three police officers um, 
may be like stuck by a used needle during their career. And most of them report it is one of the most stressful and anxiety provoking events that they go through. And so it's like, you know, not only are we looking at this as, you know, we're producing, we're reducing the opiate deaths and opiate overdoses, but also, you know, it has been proven to show that there's less syringes improperly disposed of, that they're less likely, if they know they can get access to syringes, there's no reason for them to carry them around. They're going to use it and dispose of it, and they're not going to carry it in their pockets. You know, the reason that they're carrying them around, presumably, is because they may need it again. But if they know they can get one whenever they need one, I mean, so it's just interesting to me that, you know, there's this, it's very divisive and people feel very passionately on both sides. And I think I'm in a position where I just, kind of want to ask questions. And it's just very, it's just an interesting concept to me. And I find it, I wonder, you know, is it one of those things where we're having some, you know, political polarizations um, in terms of this like big public health thing. And then you're talking about how you mentioned there's some legal piece to it about like, is this permissible? Is this, you know, something that is going to be allowed, you know? So um, I would just remind people to think about all of the pieces of this problem, because I think one of the common errors that that we've talked about is when you just look at it as, oh, it's it's a drug addicted fentanyl user. And it's so much more complicated than that. It sure is. Yeah. And there's. But that's just one one thing that people are are kind of looking towards is is, you know, the harm reduction, you know, some of the other things is the other side of the issue, which is, you know, you've got a, a certain crowd within the city of Burlington arguing that it's about enforcement. And so um, I don't think anyone means arresting all drug users, to be clear. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think sometimes when people say we need more enforcement, um, they get sometimes accused of saying like, oh, so you just want to uh, arrest all all drug users. But I, I, as far as what I've heard, I, I haven't heard anyone suggest that. I think I think they mean police department's ability to at least have consequences maybe for drug dealers, low-level drug dealers. You know, the city of Burlington doesn't have as many officers as as it once did. And so they actually told the city council in October, uh, the officers gave an update on sort of what the current state of their drug unit was. And they have a street crimes unit that used to be staffed that is now only voluntary overtime. Yeah. And so when you have a street crimes unit staffed like that, they're just going to have to ignore certain low level, not maybe ignore, but not devote as many resources to low level crimes yeah. and low level drug dealing than they once did. And so that's a certain factor. I mean, there have been a couple big high profile drug busts of um, guys that for some reason all seem to be from Philadelphia yeah. that were operating in, in Burlington and they're busted with, you know, 13,000, 17,000 bags of fentanyl. And, and that's just like a small window of time. Yeah. And so that's a lot of fentanyl. And um, so the police, you know, they, they are making arrests, but it's, it's um, there's still a lot more, a lot more to go on that part of it. Yeah, it's just like the Hydra problem. You cut off one head and two rise up in its place. I mean, just opportunity. And I know with the changes in how the police department had been staffed and what, what was going on in the pandemic and everything, obviously, you know, both of us working there at that time, we kind of saw that, you know, 
five years ago, I don't remember ever hearing about a Philadelphia drug gang running City Hall Park. And now, like, you know, before I left there, we were running a lot of homicides, a lot of gun violence. And it, a lot of it was related to the clash between people who, you know, felt that they had ownership of certain territory and, and certain groups of people and other people who are trying to, you know, get into that market. And it's, it's just it's just a new world. It's a whole new ecosystem out there. And so the police department's doing a little bit, you know, they're, they're doing what they can to try to crack down on this stuff. We have, um, you were able to talk to a doctor, right? Dr. Brooklyn about a little bit about what they're doing. What's their process on this? Yeah. Dr. Brooklyn is the, uh, medical director of the Chittenden clinic, which is Chittenden County, Chittenden County's only methadone clinic. Um, and so methadone works for fentanyl users. Um, Suboxone, not as much because of all these, uh, you know, physiological reasons of how Suboxone can't, it gets up to a certain point and then it's just not effective no matter how much you add. Whereas methadone, you can just keep adding until you get the dosage right. Yeah. Um, And so that's why methadone can work for fentanyl. But the problem is methadone is so tightly regulated by the DEA that it's not that simple to just expand it. But um, I think there's the um, this broad effort to really people will acknowledge that part of the solution to combat the, the current state of the drug crisis is to get more people on methadone. And so I think you're seeing um, hospital emergency departments are um, are trying to get people started on methadone um and they're you know at least within the state of vermont they're looking at expanding the places that can administer methadone but like i said that's kind of tough when you have to consult with the dea about the, you know the example i got from the state department of health is um there's a, a a methadone clinic in the state of vermont that um was told by the dea that their walls weren't thick enough for security reasons. And so you've got all these little things like that, that you kind of have to follow, but, um, but methadone, um, and I, I spoke to a gentleman who's, um, a, uh, frequent user of, of fentanyl. And he told me the same thing that he, uh, didn't like Suboxone. Suboxone can trigger precipitated withdrawal if you use it wrong or at the wrong time. Um, and he said methadone was, uh, was pretty much the way that most fentanyl users are going right now. You know, one of the things you wrote in your article that really stuck with me is um, a quote that an individual had where it's like, you know, I can't compete with a drug dealer who's going to show up at your house at 2 a.m. 10 minutes after you text them and give you whatever you want for a cheap price. Like that's just the fast food of of drug administration. And, you know, these methadone clinics, they're regulated. Like you have to schedule an appointment, right? You got to like find a way to get there. You might have to travel for it, especially if you don't live in Burlington. I mean, how are you going to get there? How are you going to get back for someone who doesn't have a home or a car? That might be a big, a big leap where, you know, these drug dealers will come right to your tent and hand it to you and do whatever you need to do. And so this, this unit, I can't remember, I'd have to look it up. Maybe I can put it in the show notes if I can figure out the reference, but, um, they'll go to these sites where people are overdosing and they'll, they'll make the necessary medical interventions. And then they'll say, Hey, do you want to start methadone right now? 
like make it as easy as possible to take that step. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was reading your article, sometimes these methadone treatments can require like multiple appointments, right? It's a process. It's not just a, you know, one time and forget it. Right. Yeah. Because you can't get all the way up to your first, your, your final dose can't happen until weeks into the process. So, um, so you need to start at a lower dose and, keep going back to a methadone clinic to work your way up to your, your final dose. And so, yeah, it can be, um, but there has been six, I, from what I understood the, um, the emergency department in, in, in Burlington, um, has had some success because of the fact that they can at least get someone started yeah. on methadone and say like, okay, yeah, the, you're not going to be able to get into the methadone clinic until let's say Monday, but let's get you set up on your initial phase of methadone and we'll get your appointment scheduled at least. And then you can go from there. Um, but yeah, it's it, the reality of it is it's a, it's a long process and they're going to, let's say even taking Burlington out of the equation. I mean, it's a tough system because if you're in, some very rural state and the methadone clinic is a very, very long drive and in the nearest city, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough thing and you're going to have to make frequent trips. And so, um, yeah, it's a tough system. Yeah. I, I was talking to Dan Wolfson a couple of years ago and he was, he was pushing that same rhetoric you're talking about of like, you know, if we go to, uh, someone who, is willing to accept any treatment and is willing to even take a ride to the hospital, you know, they have the ability, at least at the Burlington hospital to that day, like get them referred and get them started on something. And one of the big pieces of feedback I, I just like hear ringing around in my head from a lot of these op opiate overdoses that we went to is, is this like, well, what are they going to do for me? They're not going to do anything. I don't need anything. They're not going to do it. They can't do anything. And so I think being able to say, well, they can, they can start you on methadone today. You can be started on methadone in a couple hours. Like if you're ready to do that. Um, I think that's like a big point that, you know, making sure EMS providers know that, you know, some of these hospitals, you should find out, you know, what are the resources in your community and, and what your hospital can do, because that may make the difference. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and then Burlington's starting a new team down in, uh, the, at least the downtown area, the community response team. And I listened to a really good podcast with some of our old friends there. They're coming up with this community response team. And, uh, were you able to speak with them at all and hear a little bit about what they're doing? I did. I did. Um, which required putting a disclosure at the bottom of the article saying that yeah, I am right. a former member of that department that yeah. I was speaking to, but it was really fascinating to talk about the origins of that team. And I thought it was a really powerful anecdote. So in early September, um, the Burlington Fire Department is now running um, 48 hour shifts and they had a 48 hour shift that saw a completely unprecedented number of uh, reported overdoses or unresponsive uh, people or a person down. And they were just, um, Chief Chance was going around making his rounds and he just heard call after call. And finally, a couple paramedics came up to him and said, like, one was half joking, saying, like, oh, we should just put someone in a in a UTV and, and go around to, you know, help out with these. But then more seriously, another medic came up and said, we have to do something like, yeah. uh, as call after call was was coming in. And so the idea of this community response team 
really bubbled up from the ranks. And it was, I think it's two benefits for, for the city. One being that it's something different to try for the responders themselves to put fewer resources out for, you know, maybe it's a reported overdose or someone just experiencing the desired effect and they don't want, they don't want to talk to anyone. They don't want to go to the hospital. Yeah. And so rather than having an ambulance in a, in an engine, go out to that while you potentially miss some other important call, they have this community response team in a pickup that are more proactive and are able to be out there to sort of triage more or less to say like, and if they, to be clear, if they need an ambulance, they're, they're going to get one, but, um, but they're out there. And then I think the other benefit is to the city because, and the chief really tried to sell this as well by saying like, look, this is, this is more of a proactive role. Like they're not going to be every day just waiting in the station. They, they can be out in the downtown area building relationships, you know, xylazine causes these terrible wounds, um, these infected wounds. And maybe, um, maybe you can give a bandage to someone that really doesn't want to go to hospital, but they're struggling with the xylazine wounds. And so you can kind of build that relationship to say like, Hey, we're, you know, we're looking out for you. We're just here to help. And so it's a very different kind of response model. The city of Burlington, I will say sounds very, excited about the idea from all political spectrums. I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people speak highly of even just having like, look, this is a new idea. And I think we're at the stage of this crisis where just trying something new and this, this fire department program is only a pilot. So they got funding for six months to run it. But I think there's a lot of hope to say like, just to see like, if this works, then we just have to be willing to try new things. Yeah. And we're no worse off than we were before. You know, I remember watching a video online of Skid Row in Los Angeles and there, there was a nonprofit actually there of medical volunteers in a, just a gator with an oxygen tank, a BVM and Narcan. And they would get reports from the street from just someone being like, Hey, 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 there's someone's overdosing over there. And they'd get in the truck, they'd zip down there and they'd resuscitate that person and then call for an ambulance if they needed it. And it's, it's very similar. It's like, you know, just being that forward stage resource. And to be clear, my understanding is that those community response teams, they do carry the necessary things to reverse an overdose mm -hmm. and, you know, work a cardiac arrest and those minimal things. It's, you know, it's not like they're just sitting there with a clipboard, you know, they do have all the other things that's more, you know, calling the ambulance when, when, you know, something more higher medical is warranted, but. I think that's great. And just the contact, it's almost like how the Howard Center Street Outreach Program approaches mental health and, and wellness around people who are, are houseless. You know, these folks on the community response team are able to be out in the community and, you know, maybe they give a bandage to someone the first three days, but then the fourth day they say, hey, I'm ready to go get some methadone. And maybe that contact, all these studies that I was reading, they talk about frequency of contact being a really big factor and someone actually um, getting into treatment. And so um, one of the teams they talked about in one of these studies is called like the SORT team, which is like the strategic overdose response team. And they actually do three follow-ups within 72 hours, if possible, to try to say, you know, hey, this happened to you. How are you doing? Hey, it's happened to you. Do you need anything? Hey, it's happened to you. Because they found that just the initial response 
and leaving isn't isn't successful in actually moving that patient into recovery or treatment. It's it's the constant contact. That's that's the way we can get them what they need. Yeah, and I I think back to when I was trying to describe what an overdose prevention center does. Um, the executive director of the New York program had a really interesting quote, which she called the actual overdose interventions or the drug use part of those centers. She called it the least interesting thing of what they do, because she was trying to say that it's more about that they have an opportunity for this very vulnerable population to kind of intervene and, and say like, you know, if they're willing to come in the door to use an illegal substance in a supervised manner, well, then maybe it's not that much of a stretch to say like, Hey, have you thought about, have you thought about getting started on methadone or, or, you know, any kind of treatment? So if these things like a community response team can be more proactive and, and more about building a relationship, then, um, maybe that's what's needed. Yeah. And this is, this is such a complex issue because you have, you have an economic side, you have a legal side, you have a a medical side, you have a psychology side, and then you just have this social piece of this, you know, and and each problem kind of intertwines itself with the other one. And, you know, I think the only way we're going to make any progress in this area is if we just keep doing exactly what they're doing in, in places like Burlington around the country where we're just, just keep trying something until it works. I mean, that's basically how they invented antibiotics, right? Is they just keep trying different things and eventually it makes a huge change and an impact. So, um, as we wrap up here, is there, is there anything else you want to share from your articles about, you know, just, just what's going on and any, anything close to your heart that you feel people should really think about when they're looking at this topic? And no, I think, I think it's, we've touched on the, the major points, but I, you know, I, one of the things I really wanted to, to show is, um, that there's, there's just so many different ways that this affects the community. I mean, I tried to show the actual users, I mean, the folks on the street and what it, how it changes their life, but also what it's, what it's changed with, you know, city governments or, or, you know, first responders, you know, big time. And, and as we've just talked about, you've got departments that are just trying to look for a, a new way to do things, um, to meet the challenge. So, um, it's an ongoing topic for sure, but, um, definitely. And, and I really encourage, I'll put it in the show notes, go and read those two articles are phenomenal. They did a really great job. And, and I love the narrative style that you create where you have, you know, some, some historical background, you have some science, you have some data, you have some studies, and then you have real human beings that are talking about their experiences, everybody from, you know, addiction center doctors to people who are in this, who are dealing with this and struggling with this and, and reading about that gentleman that you were speaking with, who, um, he was living on the streets, just hearing how much of a challenge that is, you know, just to not slip back into this and how little things that go sideways in their life can and push them back into that whirlpool. And one of my experiences that I had in City Hall Park that always stuck with me is this guy that had been in um, opiate recovery for three years and then his dad died suddenly and he was back in City Hall Park less than 48 hours later and he was like just just melting down about how frustrated he was, you know, that he, you know, that he, um, 
you know, slip back into this. And, and one of the things that I remember him saying is like, I'm right back to the beginning. I'm right back to the beginning. And if you talk to people who are from like NA or AA, one of the things they'll talk about is you're not though, because you did, you know, a thousand days, a thousand plus days without using a substance. And you had one day where you did like anybody that took a written exam and got 999 questions right. And one question wrong. You don't look at you like a loser. You look at you like, you made a mistake and, and you had a bad day and we can, we can keep moving forward. And, you know, that was a really profound experience to me. And that showed that he was doing really well, but when his social circumstances changed, it put him into this area of vulnerability where he just found himself right back at it. And that's just the terrible grip that these drugs have on people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Patrick, I really appreciate you being here. Um, uh, hopefully we'll have you back as uh, new stories develop and we can keep talking about it. And uh, thanks for driving all the way out to Jericho. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to chat again sometime. Thanks. Definitely. Definitely.